Welcome to Stand the Reason, friends. I keep chuckling. After all these years, I still laugh at that stupid bird uh, who is not a bird at all. It's just me messing around decades ago at the KBRT studios, and uh, the mic was open. And so we <laughs> there were a bunch of other animal sounds I made that day, and uh, fortunately they have not been included, but this one has become kind of iconic for this show. Greg Kokel here, show us Stand a Reason. And today I'm off schedule, so that means I'll be taking your open mic calls. And it's a good thing, too, because I got pages upon pages of those calls, and I'm so thankful for them all because it really helps me um, in a lot of circumstances, especially when I'm off schedule. In other words, I'm not on the regular broadcast day where you can call in. So I use these calls that you make and record for these kinds of shows. Now, you can do that two ways. You can go to our homepage and under podcasts, you can look at live broadcast. And then there's a feature there that will allow you to record uh, a question for me. And then Amy picks it up and then uh, that goes on the list. And so I get an idea of what's up next. And then we play that and I respond to it on the air. The other way is just to phone it in. And you can do that by... Uh, Dialing eight five seven dial S T R that's D I A L S T R or by the numbers eight five seven three four two five seven eight seven. Okay, that's the way to get that done. So um actually the first one's an easy one, so I don't have to do a commentary because this one is uh, a little uh, a story about a note that Drew uh, received on his car responding to his pro-life stickers. I haven't heard this yet, so uh, let's let Drew do the opening commentary with this story. Drew, what's up? Hey, Mr. Kokel, I protest. Uh, I have some protest signs. Um, one of them says, abortion is homicide. Another one says, some choices are evil. Another one is, boy or girl assigned at conception. And the last one is, my pronouns are, don't kill babies. <laughs> anyway, I got back to my car, and I thought you'd have fun with this. And I, there was a note on my windshield, and it says, Your signs represent hate, not love. God is love, not hate. Do better. Isn't that kind of fun? Nice note, huh? Anyway, I thought you could have some fun with that. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. My goodness, my goodness. Thank you, Drew. And I'm just... I, I'm just. I even jot, jotted down some of the some of the um, sticker statements. Abortion is homicide. Don't kill babies. And um, I, I guess I uh, my uh, something about my pronouns are don't kill babies. Maybe that was it. And something else about about pronouns. And the response was hate, not love. So somebody says, don't kill babies, and the response is, you're being hateful. You're not being loving. So am I to understand that killing babies is the loving thing to do? Or um, I guess abortion is homicide. It's just a statement about the nature of abortion. And I guess you could, strictly speaking, homicide is a legal term. And if the killing in view is not illegal, it can't strictly be called homicide. So if somebody wants to press that that legal point or the, the issue of 
terminology, fine. You, the, our point, those who are pro-lifers, are that abortion is de facto homicide. It is, for all intents and purposes, homicide, taking the life of an innocent human being without proper justification. Now, that's eminently defensible. People don't necessarily agree with that, but it is defensible because abortion kills something, and the thing that abortion kills is a developing human being at one stage of that human being's development while that human being is in the exact place that human being belongs in the womb of the mother who is in fact making that human being, or I should say has made that human being, and is helping that human being to grow to a point where that human being could make that individual's entry into the outside world and where that human being can be welcomed, and is usually the case. Um, And all of that, of course, is switched if mom doesn't want the baby, which she wouldn't call it a baby at that point. She'd call it a lump of tissue or something along that line. Now, I remember many, many, many years ago, uh, Dennis Prager, who at that time was a Southern California broadcaster, now he's national and very successful, and has and this is a man who really moves the meter in the nation, in my view, given all the things that he's doing with Prager University, also known as Prager U, and all of its offshoots. Okay, but um, for a long time, <clears throat> and I don't know exactly how he characterize himself right now, but he does um, offer pro-life arguments. Okay, <clears throat> he may be have some exceptions regarding that, but um, uh, in other words, there might be an exceptional circumstance where he thinks that abortion is morally justified, but he thinks most are not. Okay, now I remember though when he was not as sanguine, or I, that's not the right word, he was not as pro life leaning. Okay, but he did have important questions to those people who were pro choice, and he said this. Uh, I don't know, he said, when life begins. I don't know if it begins at conception. I don't know if it begins uh, at the quickening. I don't know if life begins at the birth of the child. But here is something I do know. It doesn't begin whenever, whenever the mother says it does. Now, that was very perceptive, and it's a little bit of an end run, because without committing himself to the general view, he is pointing out, at least at that time, the, the flaws in the way the pro-choice um, advocate was thinking, okay, and um, <clears throat> and, I, and this is this is um, th- th- this <laughs> this this affects the way people ought to view abortion, okay, and, or stickers like um, here's my here are my preferred pronouns: don't kill babies, or abortion is homicide. All right. Um, and for someone to respond to this thing, abortion is homicide, if, if they, that this is hate, not love, in what sense is it hate? It's a fair question. Why is it hateful to contend for the lives of unborn children? Now, you might think that a woman has a right to abortion. Okay, fine. That's a separate issue. What this person has done is said, if you don't think that a woman has a right to take the life of their, her unborn child, then that is an act of hate. What's interesting to me is that 
<clears throat> hate is a interior, internal um, state of affairs, if you will. You are judging somebody's motives. Now, I think it's it's um, certainly possible to conclude from some course of violent action and violent language that a person is expressing a hateful attitude with the action or the language. But saying you shouldn't kill babies, that's an example of that? That's just crazy. Okay, so here's another principle. First of all, this is obviously silly. Hate, not love. God is love. Do better. Okay. I don't know. It's just like that whole statement. I'm pausing because that whole statement could be turned back on the person who wrote the letter, or the note, rather. How is this hate? And isn't killing the baby for reasons that people give for their abortions, isn't that more akin to hate than saying don't kill babies or abortion is a, is homicide? Or at least it's, it certainly is akin to hostility. Maybe it's not motivated by hate. Maybe it's motivated by, by self-concern. But still, it is hostility towards the child to kill the child for the reasons that are given for abortion, for self-interested concerns that trump the life of the child. So it's it's goofy. But here's another little principle. When you read, uh, when you see responses like this, hate, not love, God is love. Okay, the, this person, the pro-choicer, apparently is more spiritual than you are. Fra- um, Frank Beckwith once said, that uh, when a person can't, especially someone who's religious, making a claim to some kind of religiosity, when they can't, in a sense, beat your point with a valid argument, they trump you with spirituality. All right? Here's that person. Oh, hate not love. God is love. In other words, the God I worship is a God of love, and because he's a God of love and I am like that God, I would never say, don't kill babies. I would never say abortion is homicide because I'm much more loving and godly than you are. That's what's going on here. Okay, do better, right? Whenever you see somebody respond like this, you know they don't have an argument. Okay? Sometimes people have said to me, I I just am amazed that you could be so calm in a heated situation when you're on the air with somebody disagreeing with you and it's maybe unpleasant to you. How do you do it? I say, well, the first (laughs) thing that helps me is that everybody's listening. And so when somebody's nasty to me I and I'm nasty to them on the air, everybody else hears me. So that kind of helps me out. Now, I try to not be nasty, even in private and when it's one-on-one, but uh, that's, that's one factor, just to be totally transparent. I'm on my best behavior, right? But secondly, when you get nasty or when you use loaded rhetoric like this—and by the way, this is nasty— Hate, not love. That's passive aggressive, because it's passive because it's 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 uh, um, it's encouraging people to love, 
like they're loving. You should love like I am. That's the passive. That sounds nice. But it's aggressive because it's it's calling the person who disagrees with them a hater. <clears throat> and hate has nothing to do with the pro-life view. Why would anybody be accused of hate? What, what's the substance of that accusation when applied to a pro-lifer? Well, who, who could they possibly hate? Okay, so I, I, I don't know how anybody would answer that question, but any answer is going to be absurd. This is not an act of hate to say, don't kill babies. Abortions, homicide. It's not an act of hate. But since the person who wrote the note has nothing other than a passive-aggressive response to give you loaded language, name-calling, you know they don't have anything better on their side. Even if they said women should be be deprived of their right to choose, that has more substance than hate, not love. Because at least it's a kind of an argument. Here's a rationale. Here's why you're mistaken when you when you um, you, you say abortion is homicide or don't kill babies. Because it's a necessary evil to give women a choice that is more important than the life of the child. I mean, I don't think that's sound, but at least it's an attempt at making an argument. And it does, or they could say, you know, abortion isn't homicide because no valuable human being is losing their life. It's not a baby. It's a lump of tissue. It's a fetus. It's a zygote. It's just a bunch of cells. These are all other ways to respond that at least are substantive to the point being made by Drew in this case. But hate, not love, that has no substance. All that is is rank uh, passive-aggressive name-calling. That's all it is. Why would somebody do that? Because they have learned in the culture that this is acceptable and it works to disqualify a view you don't like. All you have to do is call them a hater. It doesn't have to make any sense. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the issue. All you have to do is just say that, that they're a hater or bigoted or intolerant or narrow-minded or a whole host of things that people might say just to brush you off and disqualify you. And all I'm saying right now is just know when somebody does that, they don't have an argument. If they had an argument, they'd use it. But they don't have an argument. And that's why they use this other nonsense. Strictly speaking, these are called informal fallacies. Point being, they are distractions, they're red herrings, they drag you off the case, they have nothing to do with the issue at hand. This is why we make the case, or we, um, we counsel at Stand to Reason, don't do that. Don't use empty rhetoric. Don't use uh, loaded phrases to make your point, all right? Why not? Because we have an argument. We have reasons why we can—we uh, we hold the views we hold and that these reasons are good ones. And if people want to disagree, they're fine. They're welcome to give it, but we're not going to call people who disagree with us haters in virtue of the disagreement. Now, it may be that they're expressing hateful behavior. And by the way, that's true a lot of the time. They are actually acting in a hateful way. 
a quantifiably hateful way. It is not a word we're just tacking on because we don't like the person's view. It's because there is a thing called hateful, hostile, abusive behavior, okay? And it's okay to call it that, but we can't simply point at the hateful, hostile, abusive behavior and use that as a rationale to reject the view. Because somebody who's hateful, in fact, and hostile, in fact, and abusive, in fact, can still be right on the view they hold. The two are separate from each other. One is the view, and the other one's the person, all right? And, um, and, and, and uh, one doesn't have anything to do directly with the other, all right? And so, um, how, however, there's a signal here. When people are acting that way and doing those kinds of things, and there's no substance to their challenge, then it may be that <laughs> their hateful, abusive behavior is a substitute for a principled response. And I think this is what's going on here. And I uh, thank you, Drew, for <laughs> sharing that story with us. Uh, I wonder if you kept the tag or you kept the note. Do better? Yeah, how about do better than this kind of response to a challenge to a great moral concern? You know, in Street Smarts, I quantified and made comparison of the number of abortions that have happened since uh, Roe v. Wade in, let's see, what was that, 1973, same year I became a Christian. January, though, before I became a Christian in September, I quantified and I got the statistics. How many abortions were performed that were recorded up until about 2017? And the average is—I don't have the figures in front of me. It's in the book and footnoted. There's over 3,000 per day, every day, for over 50 years, or almost 50 years. Okay, now just keep in mind, over 3,000, 2,977 people died on 9-11. Can you imagine thousands of 9-11s back to back? That's what we're looking at with abortion in America, just here, okay? Um, maybe maybe we can do better than that. That's where the do better applies. Or maybe we can do better to responding to concern about, about carnage on that magnitude with calling somebody a hater and then appealing to God as the God of love. This God of love, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, is the same God who opened Elizabeth's womb with John the Baptist, who that person, John, in his second trimester in his mother's womb, leapt with joy in the presence of the mother of Elizabeth's Lord, her language, Mary, when Mary came to greet her, and the Lord at that moment that Mary was already the mother of, was a zygote. She had just conceived and made her way pell-mell right after the announcement from Gabriel up to Jerusalem from the Galilee to see if, in fact, what the angel had told her about Mary, about Elizabeth's pregnancy was true. That's the God who is love. 
that is the God who created those two in the womb as themselves, and therefore killing either of those two through abortion would have killed John and Jesus themselves. Concerned about the God of love? Okay, listen to him. Listen to him. Okay, thank you, Drew. Let's take a break. Get worked up. All right, back in a moment. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. And that would be hashtag STRS with the, I don't want to say infamous, because that means something like famous for the wrong reasons. The famous, the one and only Amy Hall, my compatriot. Actually, she's the host of that show. She opens, she closes, she conveys the messages, and then she puts her, I was going to say cherry on top, but it's actually better than that. Her insight to whatever I've offered, such as it is. And really kind of wraps it up so nicely. So be sure to listen to hashtag STRask if you don't already because you will get Amy. You already get me here. You'll get Amy, and she's great. All right, let's uh, let's hear from Mike, and uh, he's got a question about blood and the Day of Atonement. Hi, Greg. This is Mike from Pocahontas, Illinois. Thanks for the great work done by Stand to Reason. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, gives directions about how the high priest is to sprinkle sacrificial blood on the mercy seat when he enters the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. Was the mercy seat cleaned up after this, or was the sprinkled blood permitted to dry out and stay on the mercy seat year after year? Well, Mike, I have never been asked that question before, nor has it occurred to me. There's no, obviously, instructions that are given in that text. 
about uh, that circumstance. Incidentally, I've never heard of Pocahontas, Pocahontas Illinois, and I, I grew up there. I'm not doubting you, but it's kind of a, kind of a sweet name. I wonder where it's at. I'll have to check it out sometime. But um, so two things to keep in mind. I, I think what we envision is this big mess of bloody goo that lasts a long time. Uh, and I think the qualifier is, first of all, this was a sprinkling. It wasn't a pouring. It was just a sprinkling. So it was a kind of a, um, um, you know, what's the word? Uh, a modest, a modest move. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to imagine, I've seen some things in movies, but I don't know how they actually did it. But they probably dipped something into the blood and then then shook it towards the mercy seat so that there's a sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat. So just think of a, you know, a light rain or something like that, a, a splattering or a smattering maybe. Splattering is, sounds like too much. Okay. I think it was a token expression. I mean, it was meaningful, but it was just it, they weren't burying or submerging the mercy seat in blood. It was being sprinkled. And what was going on there? Now, now this comes from my earliest days as a Christian, and I, I actually haven't followed this up, but the, the teaching sounds sound to me, that what you have in the mercy seat is you have the Shekinah glory that is hovering over the Ark of Covenant. The problem is in the Ark of the Covenant, we have these evidences or tokens of Israel's disobedience. You have the manna, um, or at least originally had it. I, I think after a while, this was no longer in there. But the point is the manna, which was God's provision that the Jews eventually rejected and grumbled over they wanted meat. Okay, that was a problem. There was Aaron's broken staff, so you have provision. Now you've got leadership and uh, or a portion of Aaron's staff, budded staff. That was it. So this this was a, a reflection of the rejection of God's uh, leadership, and also you have the uh, tablets of the commandments that were broken, and that reflects a rejection of God's law. So you have these iconic characterizations of sin by the nation of Israel, and the Shekinah glory is looking down, so to speak, um, on the sin that is beneath it, and there you have the mercy seat in between that when sprinkled with blood, the Shekinah glory sees the blood that is the atonement instead of seeing the icons of sin. Now, of course, these are all metaphoric phrases, and this is all symbolic, but it is a way of expressing how the blood atones for the sin so that the so that God is satisfied. He is uh, uh, propitiated. That means his anger and his wrath are appeased, if you want to put it that way. Some people don't like that word because they don't want to think of God being angry. But God, just read the Old Testament. I'm reading through Jeremiah right now. And one of the huge problems, I think, in the church in general today, Christendom in general, is that they just—we don't like the angry God. We're not into that. So we're just going to reread. Um, C.S. Lewis said God is dangerous, and he, he depicted that through Aslan, of course. He's not a tame lion. Is it safe? 
Jill Pohl said to Aslan, thinking that she could cross in front of him to get water because she was desperately thirsty. And he said, no, it's not safe. And this is a point that a lot of people don't get. God is not safe. We, we need protection, okay, and that we see characterized right there in the mercy seat. Now, what's going on, though, is there's sprinkling. And there's no more sprinkling, as far as I know, until a year later. I don't have any sense that people are going in and cleaning up afterwards, partly because only one person could go in once a year. It was the holy of holies. And in fact, if you violated um, the, the sacredness of the holy of holies, you could die. And my understanding—now, again, I'm just going by what I've been told, and I haven't really checked this out—is that the high priest, when he went in, had a rope tied around his waist. In case he did something wrong and got struck dead, they could drag him out. Now, even if that's apocryphal, like didn't really happen, there is a point there, and the point is that this is the Holy of Holies that was where the Shekinah glory dwelt, which Shekinah glory was satisfied by blood in light of the sin of Israel once per year. Okay, so uh, that's why nobody's going in there to clean up, nor do I think anything needs to be cleaned up because, like I said, it's just a sprinkling. And a year later, I'm sure that that was virtually inconsequential. Now, outside of the temple, there were actual sacrifices taking place. The sacrifice wasn't done in the Holy of Holies. The blood was brought there from the sacrifice, but the sacrifices were going on on the outside, and that was a messy affair. And I know they have large labors and all this other stuff where things were done. I haven't made a study of it myself. It's not an area of real interest to me, but others have. And I know you can go online or wherever and you can find details about this. But just reading through scriptures, there are occasions where lots and lots of live animals get butchered to provide sacrifice for various um, purposes. And that means there's a lot of blood. So that was messy, and I don't know how they even cleaned that up. But the important thing is, is that the the wrath of God against sin was appeased for the Jews by the sprinkling of the blood taken from a an innocent uh, substitutionary sacrifice. And of course, as the writer of Hebrews makes very clear, especially in chapter 10, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. All right? Human sinned, human, a human has to pay. And uh, that's why it goes on to explain the perfect human that was uh, the exact representation of the, of the divine nature, Hebrews chapter 1, had to die in our place for us to be forgiven. And then it wasn't just a, a sop, so to speak, that tided things over, like the Old Testament sacrifice, which never really provided forgiveness of sin. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says why the the sacrifice had to be repeated over and over and over again, because it could never take away sins. But the one Jesus made one sacrifice for all time, having accomplished complete and permanent forgiveness of sins for those 
who were, so to speak, under the blood. Under the blood, protected by the blood, safe because of the blood. Propitiated, God propitiated towards them because of the blood. That's the picture. So anyway, no, I, I don't, I think it was just sprinkled. It didn't get cleaned up and it wasn't a problem. Um, but it was a great picture of the solution to the biggest problem. Thank you, Mike. Okay, this one is coming from Mary Arnold, and it's about legalism. You got that one there? Hi, my question is regarding membership. Uh, my husband and I started attending a new church about a year ago, um, and so we sat down with the pastor to talk about membership. Um, when we did, he had no concerns other than the fact that we have a house at the beach and we do go there often during the off season. Is this biblical is, or is this legalism? Um, I understand his point of view in regards to relationships and the way that he wants relationships within the church to um, be strong and uh, be a place where we can hold each other accountable. Uh, but I don't really believe that our trips to our home at the beach would affect that. Um, also, when we're at the beach, we go to a regular church there. So it's huh. not like we're just not going to church or being a part of the community of faith. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to know your opinions about this. Oh, Thanks well, so well. much. Yes, you're welcome, Mary. And this, I'm groaning a little because this concerns me, okay? I'm actually a little bit curious how consistent the pastor is with this rule, because it is a rule. He's concerned that you are missing some Sundays from his church or your church, your community. Um, and uh, does the pastor not take any time off? Is he there every single Sunday, 300—wait, that's the wrong number—52 weeks a, w a year? Is he there every Sunday? Uh, I mean, just think of— just think of all the pastors who are probably pastors whose names you know that make a big difference in people's church. That Do they ever travel and go to somebody else's church? Alistair Begg? John MacArthur? Um, I don't know. Just thinking pastors. Greg, Greg Laurie? Any pastor. The, all pastors move around. No pastor is there every Sunday. Does this mean he's not only um, he, he's um, – compromising his commitment to his community as a member, but he's also compromising his leadership to that church because he's not there. I, I mean, who would think that? I go to churches all the time, other people's church on Sundays. I'm rarely in my own church, okay? I was this last Sunday. Uh, I will be next Sunday, but I won't be the Sunday following that or the Sunday following that. I'll be somewhere else. So, And by the way, I'll be in somebody else's church, which means that pastor probably won't be there at all. So I'm just making the point that if the principle is that you, as a Christian, to be a good Christian must always show up to your own local congregation, 
there's uh, there I can't imagine hardly anybody, even really good godly pastors, who are who are obeying that rule. I'm choosing my words advisedly here because that is a rule that sounds like is being imposed upon you. All right, but that is not okay. Next point. So first, there's a point of really. What about consistency? Is that what the pastor always does? Is that what any um, noble, uh, godly, effective pastor always does? They always show up at their own congregation every single Sunday? I don't think so. Now, there's a reason for this, because there is no biblical rule that we need to do that. Meeting on Sundays as a group was a habit of the early Christians. It wasn't an obligation. Now, the obligation, and this is in Hebrews 10, um, by the way, it's the only place where I know there is such a, a command of this sort that's given. And it says, uh, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So, be getting together on a regular basis. And of course, we saw this happening. We see it throughout the book of Acts. We see it implicit in a number of things that Paul writes to other churches, and, and John as well, and home churches that are involved. And yes, people are gathering together on a regular basis. The day is inconsequential. Now, I was raised Roman Catholic, and what they did is they switched the legal obligation of Jews under the Mosaic Law to have Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, uh, Roman Catholicism just shifted that and made it a legal, legalistic, indeed, requirement for all Roman Catholics to show up on church on Sunday. And not just on church on Sunday, but also the, what, six or seven or eight other, what they called holy days of obligation that were obligatory for Roman Catholics uh, to attend Mass on. And if you did not, that was a mortal sin. Now, I don't know the present circumstances with Roman Catholicism. Uh, I know they can go to church on Saturday, for example. But but the point, mortal sin, a mortal sin was the most egregious kind of sin you could commit. So it, it is not unusual for Christendom to drift into a legalistic approach um, and Catholicism is a perfect example with regards to this issue showing up on church. In fact, there was even a a time in the church service as the service begins. Now, what if you got in a little late? Well, if you got in late, it still counted until you crossed this threshold in the liturgy, and then it was too late and it didn't count. And if you had to leave early, you could leave a little bit early, but you couldn't leave before this terminating threshold. Okay, now, all of this is man-made, obviously, and the whole concept of this being a mortal sin that disqualifies you while you're in the state of mortal sin from ever going to heaven, this is all man-made as well, okay? Now, of course, Protestants don't usually fall victim to that, but in this case, though it's not being characterized as a sin— as far as I could tell, it still is being characterized as pretty much obligatory. And it strikes me as odd, because the pastor's saying, oh, here's what my concern is. You guys are great, but my concern is there are some Sundays you won't be here. 
what Sundays are those? The Sundays you're going on vacation in another location, which is like what people do on vacation. And nevertheless, you'll still be going to a church by your beach place, your vacation house. So at least you are <clears throat> connected with a community there, a Christian community. And in fact, um, I actually have more friends or spend more time. Let me put it this way. I got lots of friends in my home church now, acquaintances, really, some friends, um, and in the church that I have that I go to when I am in Wisconsin. And um, in a certain sense, the friends that I have in Wisconsin, I actually spend more time with them as part of my own personal community than I do with the church I spend here. But they're still the body of Christ. Why should that ma- matter? And by the way, even the notion of membership is extra-biblical. I have never been a member, as far as I know, I don't think I've ever been a member in any church in 50 years. If what membership means is that I somehow signed on a dotted line and made certain promises regarding that local community. Now, I, I'm, I'm not objecting really to people doing that. <clears throat> it's extra-biblical. It's not. Therefore, it's, it's, it's non-biblical. It's not unbiblical. It's not inconsistent with uh, the Bible. But I do think that um, putting this obligation of you always having to show up at hit that church on Sunday is unbiblical. And I, where, I was with somebody just the other day who read this passage out of, is it 2 Corinthians, where it says some people regard one day above the other, and other people regard every day as the same. And I think he's speaking to the issue of Sabbath, Sabbath observance, which is not commanded in the New Testament, by the way. And so, um, <clears throat> so it, it, it seems like there's flexibility in how we want to gather and the schedule, etc. And to say that there is a kind of a moral obligation to show up at the same church every day of every week of your life, or at least the time you're associated with that local community, to me is is putting a requirement upon one's spiritual um, health, maybe, uh, that is not a biblical requirement. And when you make rules that are obligatory on Christians that are not biblical rules, that is one of the definitions of legalism. Now, legalism can take two forms. One form is when you are seeking to be justified by law. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. He says, for those of you who are seeking to be justified by law, then the cross is of no benefit to you. Okay? You have, you, you, you have severed yourself from Christ because, as he says elsewhere, you're either saved by law or you're saved by Christ. It's either law or grace. It's not a combination of the two. That's not an amalgam. Now, of course, being saved by Christ entails obedience to Christ, but that's an indicative. This is what characterizes people who follow Christ. They seek to obey Him. But we are not justified by that obedience. And sometimes Christians start making rules that are uh, incumbent upon believers, and it becomes very much like a, uh, a, a, a condition 
of your salvation. I don't think that's the case in this example, Mary, the one that you're talking about, but that's one kind of legalism, all right? It's a condition of your—that is what the Roman Catholic Church did, at least in my day. If you didn't go to church, you committed a mortal sin, and if you're in the state of mortal sin, when you die, you go to hell. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Does anybody know what that reference means anymore? I don't know. Yeah. Monopoly. But no, you go straight to hell. No chance. No stop off in purgatory on your way to heaven. No, that's it. So what they've done is they made this a requirement, a legalistic, requir- a legalistic requirement that has to do with salvation. That's one type of legalism. A second type of legalism is something that the Jews were also— uh, um, it was characteristic of the Jews, what they were guilty of, and that is taking man's laws and raising them up to the level of God's law. And Jesus encountered that a number of times, and he spoke about that. You take man's law and you put it up to the level of God's law, and then—and this happens too even now—God's law gets reduced, and man's law takes the front seat, God's law goes in the back seat. I don't know if that's actually happening here, God's law in the back seat, but a lot of times that happens, okay? And so when we are told not to ju- to judge others when they are exercising legitimate freedom, moral freedom in the body of Christ, and then we make a rule, like you got to be at our church every day, and then if you break the rule, then we have the pretext to judge you, then you're elevating man's law and you're violating God's law against judgment for exercising bonafide, legitimate liberty in our Christian lives. Okay, so you can see how that works. This, to me, looks like one of the, a second type of legalism. Yeah, okay, this is one of the rules. It's not a biblical rule, but it's our rule. And, um, and, and I understand the spirit of it in many cases. We just, as you mentioned, Mary, you know, we want to strengthen those relationships in the church. But when your family goes on vacation to some other property you own on the beach and— you also go to church when you're away from your home church. What what could possibly be the objection there? Really, the substantive objection. Well, I guess the objection is you're not in our church on that Sunday. So what? I, this is what, you know. Fortunately, 50 years in Christ, I have—from I, I from the very beginning— and this is why 50 years going, I'm not a legalist um, in either sense of the word, because I understand the difference between man's requirements and God's requirements. I'm all for holiness. The grace of God has appeared, seeking us to, uh, teaching us to deny ungodliness. That's Titus chapter 2. Okay, I get that. But human traditions, they're not in the same level. Okay, and there may be wisdom in these traditions, and it'd be good to follow these things. This guidance, fine, but to make it a kind of a hard and fast rule, that strikes me as legalism, and makes me wonder: Are there any other examples of this kind of thing in that local community? So, if your pastor is just concerned about this, Mary, but he's not making it a rule, okay, well. There's no reason to be concerned, Pastor. You can tell him we're on vacation. We're somewhere else. We're enjoying our family together, and we're also going to church. And incidentally, on my view, if you're on vacation like that and some Sunday you don't go to church, no big deal. 
I, I just don't see that as a serious problem. So if you never go to church and you claim to be a Christian, that is a problem. If you have, have no community of Christians that you're involved with, that is a problem. But that's not what's in view here. You're just missing some Sundays, apparently. And, um, and it may be that the pastor will say, well, you can, you can come to our church but you can't be a member if you're going to miss Sundays. And then you can say, okay, we won't be members. We'll give, we'll serve if you let us, and we'll come when we can, which is almost all the time. But sometimes we're not going to be here. That's what I'd suggest. Okay, let's see. Uh, I'm looking at like seven minutes to go. Not much time here. This next one is a little bit theologically or philosophically complex. All right, uh, let's let's go with boy. I can't even respond, re- pronounce this name, K H O N G E L A N I Kongalani Maluleke. That's either African, African. Oh, here we go. Or I'm a, son, I'm a Sunday school teacher, and currently I'm conducting Bible studies with the children. So uh, we were exploring creation from the Book of Genesis. So a kid or a child asked me that since there is no darkness in God, in the beginning did God create the darkness or the darkness was already there, which also raised the question within me to also wonder regarding uh, the devil and his sin, that if there was no possibility of a sin, he wouldn't have sinned, but that means there was possibility of sin. So did God create the possibility of sin or just as the darkness, as the darkness eternally existed with God, which was the opposite of God, and that possibility of sin came about through that darkness which had existed. So meaning the devil had the uh, ability to sin because the darkness had eternally existed or was the darkness also created by God and sin was created by God or the possibility of sin was created by God. Mm-hmm. Just even when we look into the garden that um, the possibility of sin was introduced by God by telling Adam that if he eats of the tree he would have sinned or he would have broken the law. So was the possibility of sin introduced by God or not? Okay, thank you. That is my question. I hope maybe you will find it and um, get back to me on that. Thank you. Okay, I will get back to you right now. I only have a few minutes to cover this, but I I, I don't think it's as complicated as it sounds in your question, all right? It has to do with uh, darkness, and the possibility of sin, okay? Did God create the darkness? And it seems like in this circumstance, you are equating darkness with evil. And then uh, God brings the light, and, um, the, and, and then there's this possibility of sin, and is it because of the darkness that eternally existed that then human beings somehow are influenced by and then sin, or did God create the possibility to sin. Okay, so let me just back up a little bit. First of all, 
darkness is not a thing in itself. It is often used as a metaphor in Scripture for sin, but it's not that doesn't seem to be what's going on there in the very beginning, okay? Um, what darkness is is the absence of light, all right? And sin is the absence of goodness. So when God started making things, everything He made was good, all right? Darkness didn't eternally exist. There was no, there was no uh, darkness that even darkness now doesn't exist. Like I said, it's the it's the absence of light. It's like a donut hole. I will sometimes say to people, did you ever eat a donut hole? They said, yeah, I had one of those gut bombs at church once. No, I don't mean that. Not the little round things. I mean the hole. You can't eat the hole because that's where the donut ain't, so to speak. All right. In the same way, darkness is where light is absent. Okay, so it isn't like this eternal darkness, which is equated with, is the same thing as evil that then influenced human beings. When God created the world, he put it all together in a way that was good. But part of the good way that he created human beings was to give them the moral freedom that is a good thing that made sin possible. Okay, so you could say, God did create the possibility to sin, but he only in the sense, as long as we're clearer, that he made human beings with a certain quality that was a good thing. He made them moral creatures. And my sense is that he made them moral creatures because those were the kind of creatures that God could have a friendship with. He's not going to have a friendship, really, with a lot of other critters he made, he needed to have a friendship with someone that was like him. And so these are made in the image of God. They have a moral nature. But the moral nature includes—this is part of the package—the possibility to do wrong, to sin. Okay? So, strictly speaking, God did create human beings with the possibility of sinning, but that's because of the good thing he gave them a moral nature. Sin has not eternally existed. Darkness has not eternally existed. And there is no sin in God. But human beings could act in a way contrary to God's purposes, doing what God told them not to do, in a way that would diminish the goodness of his creation. Now, I have a very particular way of illustrating this when I speak about the problem of evil and try to make the point that evil isn't a thing. It's a loss of some goodness in a thing. And I take (laughs) a—I ask an audience member for—anybody got a pencil? Somebody hands me a pencil, not a mechanical one, a wooden one. And I say, is this a good pencil? Yes. Why is it good? Because it writes. In other words, it's good because it does what it was supposed to do, what the— maker intended it to do. Yes. Okay. Then I grab the pencil and I snap it in two, right in front of the audience, to which they gasp. And I say, now is this pencil good? No, it's not good. It's broken. It can't do what it was meant to do. But has anything been added to the pencil or taken away from the pencil? Nothing has been added. 
the only thing that was quote-unquote taken away was its ability to do what it was intended to do. No new thing is created. It's just broken. And that's the best way for us to think about evil in the world. God made it good just the way it was supposed to be. He gave human beings a good thing. He made them in His image, which includes having a moral nature. And having a moral nature just means there is a possibility they can use that moral nature to do evil with it. Okay? has nothing to do with the darkness that was in the world. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It just has to do with the good world that God made, and then human beings disobeyed God. And when they disobeyed God, they broke the world. Nothing new added. Goodness taken away after a fashion. And that's what we call evil. I hope that helps, Kongalani. And uh, appreciate your question. All right, friends, that's it for this show. Greg Kokel, for Stand a Reason here. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.